Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Lindsay Nelson, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at Meiji University, where she teaches English, Japanese cinema, and Japanese popular culture. She's the author of a soon to be released book on Japanese horror and consultant on the spec script that Ollie and I are writing about a river cruise tour that runs into a pack of vicious zombie kappa. Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be called Shiriko Dama of the Dead. Lindsay, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. On this week's show, Summertime means scary times here in Japan because, according to the Japanese, a great way to beat the heat is by experiencing abject terror. Instead of talking about how that doesn't seem to be the case for the Olympians this year, we're going to talk to Lindsay about all things Japanese horror. Plus, Ollie's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ollie? Yes, Bobby, this week's recommendation is Japan's first fully electric river cruise fleet that was due to launch in Kyoto this week, but has had to unfortunately postpone the launch as they can't find the charger. They've put a public appeal out to anybody who was able to lend them a charger. Quoting from the press release, they say they're sure it's a USB one, but it's not a USB-C, the old one. Not, not the really small one, but the micro one that goes to a normal USB, and the official remarks repeatedly state that no, an iPhone charger won't help. Also, we've updated our official list of the 100 Japanese river cruises you should try before you die to reflect the fact that it probably won't be that long before we all die. That's coming up later, but first, Soap Talk. Brian, you seemed very tangibly excited during the menu when we said that the Olympics is not our main topic. Might actually be a good show this week, guys. Mm. But before we get into horror shows, we should catch up with at least some of the Olympic developments. I'm going to take five real quick. Right. Okay. Um, Lindsay, have you been watching the Olympics? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think you speak for a lot of the world where you're like, oh, yeah, God, they're, they're on, aren't they? It's... It's yeah. funny. Somebody asked me the same question today. They, was, they said, are you following it? And I was like, no. And then they started asking me follow-up questions about the various <laughs> stories, and I knew about all of them. And they were like... Exactly. Yes, wait, I say wait. I'm not following it, but I have been following it on Twitter to a certain extent. Okay, okay. So let's, let's test here. Um, haven't been watching the Olympics. Uh, did you see what happened with Naomi Osaka? Yes, I did. Thoughts? Um, I, I really feel for her. I think that she has been under a crazy amount of pressure and I'm so glad that she had the wherewithal to take a mental health break and start talking mm. about that. But at the same time, uh, you know, I know that she, she was favored to win and, and, uh, she, um, really wanted to, you know, have this moment at the Olympics and it didn't happen. And I, I feel bad for her that that happened. And on top of that, she gets to deal with all of the, is she Japanese or not stuff? Oh God, yeah. No, I think that that's the context I've been following. A lot of that is uh, I, uh, you know, have been paying a lot of attention to the conversations around people like like Naomi Osaka, and uh, you know, mm. kind of for what for me is a, a bit of tokenism of just mm. you know the Olympics kind of putting her front and center and saying, oh look how much Japan has changed, and no, not really. <laughs> yeah, right. They've they've trusted her to light the Olympic birthday cake, but the moment she loses at tennis, she's gone again. Yeah. But I, I thought Bobby's observation was very good that uh, the idea of Japanese-ness is obviously multifaceted in the same way that any ethnicity-ness is multifaceted. Mm. Uh, but uh, Naomi Osaka taking a break from work for mental health reasons um, is, is definitely her non-Japanese side kicking in there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is Bobby's observation on Twitter, which didn't get quite the reaction he was hoping for, with a lot of people just not getting it. Um, all I noticed that there was some skateboarding stuff, and that, that's the only thing I've really got from the Olympics so far, that skateboarding's a thing. 
and Japan has done surprisingly well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. it sounds like I think this year was the first year to yes. have that's correct and yes to to a 13 year old girl one which is awesome you know i'm she i'm she, i'm sure she's really excited i'm happy for her yeah and uh, uh a young man a japanese Just man <laughs> it's, she, really happy for her but but at what cost i mean yeah we, we've given a 13 year old girl the best day of her life fine but the price the price that's been paid but this is this is the the turmoil really because yes i i think you know this is how the olympics manipulates us is you know yeah we, we don't want to be seen as shitting all over young people's dreams but those dreams <laughs> exactly. are, those dreams are connected to a horribly yeah. corrupt organization That's, that is what I can happened the medal to me. from this girl's neck if that makes you happy when, when somebody asked it, it was it was exactly like that it was like have you been watching the Olympics and I was I straight up was like I think they should have canceled them I'm not happy that they're they're happening and I don't want to support them and they said did you see that that this 13 year old girl won and I was like I can't say screw that. You gotta be like, <laughs> exactly. gotta be not. like, it's lovely. It's a lovely thing. Well, yeah. well, that, but that, that's true of basically everything, isn't it? I, I think sweatshops are awful, and I think that we shouldn't exploit people. And I'm happy to tweet that on my iPhone. Or the porn industry sucks, but excuse me while I don't find an alternative. I think that's just true. <laughs> it's just true for everything, isn't it? Well, obviously we, obviously once it's there, we'll go. Yeah, I'll, I'll enjoy it while it, while it is. Ali, first of all, I'd like to take issue with you. Uh, implying that you not having an alternative to porn is of your own volition <laughs> next and second uh what about athletes with heat stroke have we, how, how many uh lindsay how many athletes have you seen down from heat stroke oh god let's see um see this is the thing i've been following is all the horror i've i've been following the you know the heat stroke the very the on brand numbers, for the you? infections exactly yeah very You're on brand because you know yeah. who needs horror films when we have a real life horror show going on yeah. um so yeah, these Olympians a, are going to come back as some real badass ghosts, aren't they? Yeah, it is a bit nostalgic to remember a time two or three years ago when that was the biggest concern about the Olympics was the heat. Um, right. Not that it's not a real concern, but that that was the thing we were most worried about, and now it's just one of many. Well, one one thing that I was quite pleased with, Bobby, is our Olympic takedown video might have actually got more views than some Olympic events. <laughs> That's potentially true. It's also, I think, my least viewed YouTube video ever. Thank you. <laughs> uh, also, 17 dislikes, which I was quite pleased about, for my YouTube debut. Uh, whenever someone asks me what, uh, what are Bobby's toxic personality traits, I now know that his main one is persuading his friends to become YouTubers. Uh, uh, <laughs> every single one of those 17 dislikes hurt me personally. But if anyone's not checked it out, on Bobby's YouTube channel, we've got a video entitled Why the Tokyo Olympics are F and then three asterisks covering up the word fucked. And uh, we'd be very glad for you to watch it. Some people have left some really nice comments, and some people have not. Fun fact about that, uh, if it's F1 asterisk, you are not allowed to monetize it. <laughs> I had to test the number of asterisks I had to put in before it allowed me to monetize a video with that title. That's interesting. So how, yeah. mu how, much, money, how much money can we make from this 1,000 views? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want the real answer? <laughs> yeah, yes, because I'd like half, please. <laughs> so far, three dollars and twelve cents. <laughs> yes, that's a coffee. <laughs> Not if you have YouTube it. She just bought us a coffee. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. We'll have to share a coffee. 
uh, and on on the note of coffee, say what a fantastic segue I've done well this week. Uh, if you if you don't want to be YouTube and um and and give us a pittance, but you want to give us a pittance yourself in your own capacity, then please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Japan by River Cruise, where you can either uh, donate to the show or you can buy some merchandise. Uh, Kumiko claimed one of the boys, which is our big bumper merchandise pack yep. with all our current stickers and magnets, and uh, that's already been sent out. Thank you very much indeed, Bobby. Did we get any listener correspondence this week? We did. We got a message from Brian. And Brian writes, Dear Bobby and Ollie, in the spirit of your recent visual gags, has returning to the UK caused Ollie to change up his look? If you Google Ollie Horn, this is currently what comes up, and he's linked to uh, the portfolio of a journalist named Ollie Horn, H-O-R-N-E, who he okay. he does have kind of like a like a Johnny Depp, Tom Cruise kind of vibe. He's quite a good looking guy. Yeah. And Brian okay, says, that, well, I hope Ollie hasn't changed his look. This definitely feels more cruise with a Z than cruise as in river cruise. <laughs> you did commit to the visual stuff. Uh, well, I've just Googled it and it's true. That guy does does exist. There is there is another Ollie Horn who's this 13-year-old who's, who's got a YouTube channel. And he's way more popular than we are, Bobby. Mm. Also, I want to point out that um, you Googled Ollie Horn with an E. Our Ollie doesn't spell it with an E on the end. And if you Google Ollie Horn without the E, Google will say, did you mean Ollie Horn with an E? <laughs> Does it actually? That's rubbish. Uh, well, anyway, there's that. And also, if you missed the episode last week, we talked about uh, about my poster, which uh, if you want to get a, a look of my lovely lady lumps, uh, I think if you Google Ollie Horn and do an image search, let me check. Okay, you can't see it yet, but eventually that will... Um... Oh, yeah, you can see it. There it is, top page of Google. So that will haunt me forevermore. Bobby, shall we take a look at the news? Bobby Judo, what's in the news this week? I'm back. Oh, yep, yeah, okay. What's in the news? Well, this week, all of the major outlets and Twitter pundits are talking about Lindsay's class haunted Japan and how her students turned in some really great final projects this year. That's in the news, is it? Just let me have this one, Ollie. Lindsay, what does the syllabus for a class on Japanese horror movies look like? Well, um, so it's Japanese horror movies are the main focus, but there's also just other spooky stuff. So we start off uh, talking about like, what scares you and why and uh, talking about you know ghost stories and campfire tales and uh you know internet urban legends and things like that um and then yeah we do look at a couple of uh famous japanese horror movies like uh dark water mm. um and don't look up um and a couple of more recent ones uh some japanese found footage horror movies like uh, shirome um and another one called toshimayan named after the park um, and, uh, yeah, I, I kind of switch it up, uh, each year, but, um, this year it was a couple of found footage movies and then some older kind of more classic stuff. Very cool. Well, um, I'm big into movies and Ali has seen Flubber. So yeah, I, I think we'd like to focus on, on kind of the cinematic aspects here. And I, I'd like to know. <laughs> but equally qualified. <laughs> kind of in terms of what scares you or how horror speaks to, you know, the culture that produces it. Is there anything that sets Japanese horror apart from other horror? I think the standard answer to this is just that Japanese horror is a lot more atmospheric and it's a lot, you know, more psychological than a lot of English language horror from the same period. So like the late 90s and early 2000s, which was more violence and gore and jump scares. Mm. Um, so, so that's the basic difference, I think. But I should say 
that the, the most famous directors of Japanese horror films, people like Hideo Nakata and uh, Takashimizu, the people who made The Ring and The Grudge, these were guys who grew up watching Hitchcock and, you know, all of these other like European and, and uh, mm. North American directors. So for them, their movies were always very foreign they were never meant to be Japanese. It was only people outside Japan who were like, oh, these movies are very Japanese and very exotic. But actually, the people who made them never really saw them that way. What do you specifically mean by, by foreign? You mean in terms of a, approach, cinematic approach? So I just mean that like, um, so you had these Japanese directors who were growing up in Japan um, yeah. and, you know, watching movies and learning about filmmaking. And most of their influences came from outside Japan. Um, right. So they came from non-Japanese movies. And so, um, you know, we can argue about whether there is a specifically Japanese way of making movies versus a non-Japanese way. But the fact is that when they talk about their influences, they're talking about non-Japanese directors and non-Japanese mm, right. filmmakers. So I think, you know, you have to think about that when you're looking at movies like The Ring and the Grudge, which a lot of people think of as quintessentially Japanese. They are, in fact, just as much influenced by directors from outside Japan. And what defines a horror movie? I think the most basic thing that defines it is just that the purpose is to frighten. <laughs> um, right. So, you know, we can debate the, the details. And, and recently there's been a lot of debate about whether is this a horror movie or is it a thriller or is it suspense? And in particular with movies like Get Out uh, and these more kind of what they call prestige horror these days, a lot of people have tried to rebrand it as, you know, psychological thriller because it sounds more respectable or something, which I honestly don't like that. It's <laughs> horror. Call it horror. It's fine. Um, but yeah, the, I think the basic defining characteristic is that the primary goal of an audience who's watching this film is to be scared um, is is what horror is. I, I can never have a discussion like this without thinking of Phil Wang's excellent joke, which is it's such a privileged thing to go to a movie to be scared. You've got you've got so much of the world which on a daily basis is is living in fear, uh, and yet we, we have a so uh, and yet we are so short of problems to solve that we'll go and spend money to be to be scared for two hours. Yeah, I I have readily acknowledged that my ability to enjoy horror films is directly connected to my privileged status. <laughs> um, but at, at the same time, the weird thing is during the pandemic, I, as when the pandemic started, I, I thought to myself, wow, I guess I'm just going to want to look at puppies and kittens now. I'm, I'm not going to be interested in horror. I actually watched way mine. more horror during the pandemic right. because it well, was that, cathartic. Yeah, that makes sense. It was a, a weird too. thing where like I... I enjoyed being scared by ghosts and monsters because I was spending the day being scared of death. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so horror served kind of that function for me during the pandemic mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, you turn on a horror movie and, and the psycho killer is like slashing at somebody in the closet and you go, well, could be worse, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so if if some of the most famous examples of japanese horror movies things that got their huge moment in in western media like in in the early 2000s right when they had the remake of the ring and they had the remake of the grudge i think that's one of the biggest moments in the global spotlight for japanese produced horror if those movies were kind of influenced by foreign directors non-japanese directors and that atmospheric vibe to them is not necessarily a product of of what a japanese audience wants or expects how how mainstream 
would you say horror movies are in Japan? Even even those movies like The Ring and the Grudge, how mainstream successful were they at the time? Well, I think The Ring is the only Japanese horror film to really be a true box office success, both in Japan and outside Japan. Um, the other famous movies like uh, Pulse, Cure, The Grudge, they, they did all right, but worldwide horror doesn't ever really do super well and i think if you think about it for a few minutes you can see why because it's it's a pretty niche audience you right. know it's not a family movie <laughs> um so uh it, it doesn't appeal to to a broad base of people um so yeah i i would say that the interesting thing is that in japan everybody knows about sadako and kayako and these these famous characters from these horror movies they know of them and a lot of people have probably seen at least one or two, but in terms of people actually going to see the films, no, they're they're not like box office juggernauts or anything. And I know that my own students at the, the universities I've taught at in Japan, pretty much to a person say, nope, no horror movies, don't do it. Just don't don't watch horror movies at all. So I've had to like kind of sneakily title my courses with things like, you know, contemporary cinema or science fiction and the gothic or something. Because if mm. I if I have a class that is just called Japanese horror movies, nobody will sign up. Are horror movies a more expensive genre to produce? Uh, actually, the opposite. I would say that horror movies are very cheap, and that's what part of the appeal. Right. Um, and it, it of course, it okay. depends on the type of horror movie, but in general... Uh, you can make a found footage horror movie for nothing because it's supposed to look cheap. Uh, you can make a zombie movie for next to nothing. You just need a bit of makeup um, and, you know, a single right. location. Mm. Um, and you can make an atmospheric horror movie uh, also very cheaply. You really, again, you just need a single location. You need some actors um, and uh, you need some decent lighting. <laughs> and, right. and that's really about it. So, yeah, you, you can be done very cheaply. And I, I just don't know enough about the world of cinema, but I do know that there's a kind of a ranking of the kind of films that an actor wants to be in. Mm. And my suspicion is horror movies might be near the bottom of the rung. Yeah, I don't know. I think it depends on the movie and it depends on the actor. I would say that, yeah, probably for women, uh, maybe you don't want to do horror because all you do is run around screaming the whole time mm. and you don't really right. have layers uh, to your performance, perhaps. But... I, I can think of a ton of horror movies that have amazing performances, uh, meaty, meaty characters and performances from both male and female actors that, and this is again you know, frustrating because they because the, the genre is not respectable, they haven't gotten a lot of the awards and recognition that they would otherwise get. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would think that with, with certain kinds of horror movies, I, if I was an actor, I would love to, to sink my teeth into roles like that. So... Let's bring it back to Japan for a minute. I'd like to ask, um, why study Japanese horror movies? Well, I think like a lot of academics, it happened by chance. <laughs> um, I took one of the first classes I took in grad school was a contemporary Japanese cinema class. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that a lot of the films we watched and wrote about for that class were horror films. Mm -hmm. So some of the first stuff that I published was on Japanese horror and then it just kind of became my thing. And uh, I realized that there weren't a ton of people who were working on this. Um, and so I, and I was interested in, I'd always liked horror in general. And then I started looking at Japanese horror and realized I liked that too. Mm. So yeah, I just, I fell into it and I've kept doing it for the last 10 plus years. 
That is one of the possible answers that I could have gotten to that question, and I appreciate it. But I'd like to reframe just a little bit. Now pretend that I am in charge of allocating funding for your university. Oh, okay, all right. Why study Japanese horror movies? Why study Japanese? Well, um, I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm going to try not to sound pompously <laughs> academic here. No, I I, I love uh, the study of film, and I took some uh, okay. some film study classes when I was in college, and sure. the teachers there always were really careful to connect things to you know what it says about the society or what it says about art in general. So I'm curious, uh, in your classes, do you cover kind of like going back to your reasons for um, what scares Japanese people and sure. the traditions around being afraid and horror in in Japan? How do those yeah, link in? I think, I think in my class, I try to help the students understand that, you know, Art is important. Any kind of art, any kind of film is important. It, it is fundamentally about what it means to be a human being, which I think is a really important question and maybe mm -hmm. one we should all think about more. Um, and I think that Japanese horror in particular and the question of what scares us in the context of Japanese horror can help us think about, you know, um, our daily lives and what we're stressed by and what we love and what we hate. Um, and the filmmakers who express that for us on film give us an opportunity to really think deeply about things that we might not otherwise think about. And they give us kind of a safe space in which to do it because they dress it up with ghosts and monsters so we don't feel like we're talking to a therapist <laughs> or something, but we still get to, you know, have kind of penetrating conversations about uh, really complicated issues. And mm -hmm. Japanese horror films often connect to Japanese social problems. There's a lot of depictions of you know, loneliness and suicide and the struggle of being a single mother and all of this happens, you know, within the context of these kind of pulpy genre movies, but mm -hmm. it still, you know, gives people a chance to, to think about those issues and reflect on them. So when you're studying these sorts of movies in your classes, what are some of the common themes or common tropes that, that you see appearing in Japanese horror? Um, the thing that I'm seeing a lot more recently, and actually what I, I write about in my book is the depiction of and the use of um, new media. So like not only within the film, you have these movies that are about like the haunted internet and about haunted cell phones and you know ghosts in social media, but then yeah. the films themselves are also made with you know like cell phone cameras um, or they're made through Zoom and stuff like that. So like the actual way the movies are made is with a lot of this kind of new digital technology and then the characters in the movies like the, the the conflict in the movies centers around a lot of things like you know smartphones and zoom and and snapchat and stuff like that you just reminded me um i remember thinking when i saw the ring in theaters that they missed a huge trick and they could have they could have done something really cool with multimedia in that film if you're watching it in the theater uh the surround sound of the theater has the ability to make it sound like things are happening in different locations in the theater in terms of the audio. Uh, I don't know why when they rolled the end credits, they didn't make it sound like everybody's cell phones had started going off. They actually did that with the sequels. Um, some of the, the Ring sequels, they had like an app um, that you could download where while you were watching the movie, like it, it would call you <laughs> or something like uh, that. And then there, there've been a lot of publicity stunts. Uh, there, there was a recent one that got a lot of attention where they set up like a fake uh, electronics store with TV screens and they had people come in like shopping for TVs 
and they had this actress behind the screen who actually like crawled out of the screen Whoa, in no the way. middle of the store. Um, so yeah, I think you're right that they missed an opportunity with the first one, but they have definitely taken advantage of that with the sequels and remakes. Mm. We talked a bit in the extras about uh, ghost stories, which I will not be pronouncing in Japanese because Bobby will tease me. Uh, I'll probably end up saying stare stories or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Same sound, different characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah e- exactly. Um, <laughs> Starey stories. <laughs> um, but, uh, and we talked about how some of the best um, c- kind of spooky stories for children are ones which are kind of relatable, right? Like you mentioned about how uh, the school toilet is like a place where you go every day and... It seems that a lot of a lot of this kind of genre, and I think it's also true for, for some comedy too, is that you make it relatable with a slight paradigm shift, and that kind of plays on your anxieties. That you don't like. There's not there's not much uh, horror set in outer space because it's not as relatable. It's set in like your own your own family home, and like you visit your grandma's house and you open a door you've never opened before, and bam, your whole world's falling apart. Is there that kind of like? Is there some kind of special? Uh, relatability in Japanese horror to kind of certain Japanese anxieties or or fears about the world. Just real quick, Ali, how old were you when you walked in on your grandmother? (laughs) (laughs) um, Bobby wasn't here for the extras this week for quite understandable reasons. And uh, uh, we also talked about um, when I went to visit my grandmother's grave as well uh and and that and i created my own horror story so there's actually a lot to unpack in this week's extras <laughs> yeah. well i i think that a lot of japanese horror movies really like horror movies in general really focus on families uh and sometimes you know broken families sometimes uh you know lonely families stressed out families and so uh the horror kind of invades the space of the home um, and it invades, you know, this intimate private place where you should feel safe, uh, but you don't. You know, there are the famous uh, scenes from uh, The Grudge where the woman is in bed and she has her head under the covers and the child, you know, is under the covers mm. with her. Um, so it's mm. like the one place you should be safe. Uh, and a student of mine this semester actually pointed that out, that, you know, the, the one place you think you're safe and you're not. Um and I think that bullying, sadly, is is a feature of a lot of Japanese horror films. There are a lot of Japanese horror films that the inciting incident uh, maybe is a child who's just horrifically bullied. And this is, I, I have kind of an axe to grind with this in general with Japanese cinema because I feel like um, a lot of Japanese films just depict bullying as just kind of uh, inevitable and just you know a thing that happens we just can't do anything about it and mm. it's it's very depressing and but it definitely happens in Japanese horror films as well uh, where you see a lot of that. Do you think then that the horror story that the inciting incident is bullying kind of can be seen as a revenge fantasy for people who were yeah bullied? for sure I think um, there's there's a movie I just watched actually called uh, Ring of Curse uh, which is no relation to the ring um, about a girl who is bullied and she uh, develops some basically kind of magical power where she can write in this notebook and terrible things will happen to people. Um, and that is definitely a revenge fantasy, I think. And honestly, it, it was kind of cathartic to watch because often in these films, you know, kids get bullied and that's just it. You're sad, but it happens. But in this one, you know, she, she really gets them back. So I was, I was so pleased to, to meet my childhood bully at a train station last year. 
and uh, he was so nasty to me. He, he was he was the the son of a footballer, and I wasn't sporty, and so it was like just ultimate, you know, the ultimate battle. And he and he and he won, and um, and I thought about it so often. Uh, since you know how my childhood was affected by it and I met him in a train station and he looked exactly the same and he recognized me and I recognized him and uh, I was heading off to a gig and I was feeling quite good about my life and I didn't ask what he was up to so I googled his name which I still remembered and I had the ultimate comeuppance uh, when I found out that he worked professionally as a cryptocurrency influencer <laughs> and I could not have been happier that would be a great subject for a horror movie for talking new technology and and kind of new media incorporated into Japanese horror. Could do one about cryptocurrency. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the main I'm character could seeing... be the crypto keeper. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm already seeing, like, there have been some recent sequels to The Ring and other films where they're about, like, influencers yeah. and YouTubers. And it's kind of like a, a warning about, you know, ooh, don't, you don't want to become a YouTuber. That's kind of shady. Um, but yeah, cryptocurrency, <laughs> you new, new frontier. Isn't there isn't there a, a horror, a Japanese kind of horror suspense series called like All I Did Was Drop My Phone? Yeah, um, One Missed Call. No, no, no. It might be more like a psychological drama. But oh, you could okay. do a I think, yeah, I haven't seen this one. I know the name, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't I don't know much about that one, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> you could do a cryptocurrency version of that called All I Did Was Drop My Life Savings. Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 93 of Japan by River Cruise. We have a new episode every week and we look forward to seeing you back here next Friday. If you haven't seen our YouTube video, check it out on my YouTube channel. And thank you to our guest this week, Lindsay Nelson. Lindsay, when can we expect your book? Hopefully by the end of this year. Uh, the book is called Circulating Fear, Japanese Horror, Fractured Realities, and New Media. And uh, you can buy it, of course, but uh, if you don't want to buy it, you can request it for your local library or your university library. That would be great, too. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week.